Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello, Pubcasters. I'm Ava Santina bringing you another round of the Pubcast. Last month, I spoke to Cleo Madeline of Gendered Intelligence about the Tories' war on the trans community and the media's role in pushing the British public further into the arms of the far right. Here's the conversation. Enjoy. Am I tough enough? Strong and stable leadership. Total rhubarb. Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Shut the fridge. Not another one. It's the Politics Show Pubcast. Hello, Cleo. How are you? I am good, thank you, yeah. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. Very nice of you to make the journey down to London. We're going to talk about the Amendment to the Equality Act mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Kemi Badnock has mm-hmm. proposed this week, um, which well, is going to be very damaging for any person who doesn't fit the biological sex category. I mean, what was your first reaction when you heard about it? So obviously there was a lot of dismay in the trans community when this first, when this news first broke, a lot of fear a lot of misinformation as well. I think one of the problems that we're really dealing with is that the people, a lot of people are acting and, and a lot of papers are reporting actually that the law has already changed or acting as if the law has already changed. You know, not only does this letter from the EHRC not change anything, it also, there's not really a proposal in place. You know, we should absolutely take seriously that there are members at the highest levels of government and more troublingly at the highest levels of the Equalities Watchdog who are keen to essentially strip trans rights and protections from the Equality Act, but they don't have a timeline in place. They don't appear to have a plan for legislation in place. And if we look at things like the uh, the Victims Bill, like the, uh, the the ban on conversion therapy, there is so much in the pipeline taking up parliamentary space at the moment. It's hard to see how this is a serious proposal at the moment. I think it's important to talk about this in the context of what is already in place. So mm. a lot of mm. a lot of the law is overinflated or exaggerated. I would argue to sort of appeal to this sort of minority right wing cabal that has really taken this issue and mm. politicised it. So when you actually look at the Equalities Act that was passed in 2010, trans people are protected under this. So Mm. they're protected Mm -hmm. if they are in the process of changing gender or they are proposing to change gender or they have made moves to already. Some of this has been sort of exacerbated now and it's now in a space where we're talking about someone could wake up one morning and decide that they are a woman and start playing sports. I mean, is that the reality? I mean, that's not really the case as far as we've encountered. There's this popular myth, I suppose, that has spread within and honestly beyond right wing circles that if we even slightly liberalize transgender people's rights or or, or even if we allow transgender people to continue having the rights that we have at the moment, then suddenly men will be deciding to be women across the world and taking part in sports. But First of all, transgender people have been around as long as anyone else has been around. There has never been an epidemic of people seeking to change gender, not even as social attitudes towards trans people have improved and as legal protections around us have improved. It's just not something that's happened. And secondly, you know, transgender people are having a really hard time of it out there, you know. Um, And if you look at the amount of 
of rage that trans athletes get just for trying to take part in sports that are appropriate to their gender. You know, sports that they've often spent a lot of their lives building a career around. It's hard to see why anyone would think that that was preferable. You know, trans athletes are having a hard enough time getting into the competition in the first place. I really don't think there's any danger of people suddenly deciding that they're going to switch gender and it, uh, in order to take part. No, absolutely. And it's important to... One thing that's really forgotten is the Gender Recognition Act passed in 2004. Mm. And when it passed, it didn't even make headlines. Mm. It was so inconsequential. And it wasn't like for the six years that followed that, there was suddenly a threat or a danger, which is how it's being portrayed in the media at the moment. I mean, how, how do you feel about the politicisation of, well, who you are? Well, I mean, individually, not great, of course. Um, it's a challenge and it's a challenge that I think people in the trans community are facing every day, really, at the moment. Um, and, you know, politicisation of our bodies has always been something that happens and it's not something that happens just to trans people. I think it's really important that there's solidarity on this issue. You know, I'm not just politicised as a trans person, I'm politicised as a woman. People are mm. politicised because of the colour of their skin, because of disability. Um, and that is really something that unites us. But there has been a definite swing, I would say, in recent years towards a particular focus on transgender people and transgender bodies. Um, we've seen an overwhelming amount of coverage from the media, uh, really exponentially increasing year on year. There's a, a media monitor called Disforum who found out that in 2022, I think, there were about 7,500 articles in the mainstream UK press on trans people. And the majority of those have a, what they called negative or sort of trans hostile coverage, the kind of coverage that presents us as a threat, as a, a danger. And yeah, that like scrutinizes us, that politicizes our bodies and our identities. And the consequence of that for individuals in the trans community, you know, people just trying to get on with their lives, is I think a feeling of pressure, a feeling of hostility coming from outside. People get scared. Um, you know, it leads to employment pre precarity. It leads to housing insecurity and it leads to mental health crisis. There is there's a really serious, tangible public danger here. And it's interesting what you what you say about we're all in solidarity, that it's women as well, because just, what, 30 years ago, you'd be able to open a newspaper and there'd be some sort of article about how women are going to work and neglecting the home and or there'd be something about birth rates. They'd be like, women are choosing work over giving birth and this is dangerous. I mean, for me, it's interesting because the group that has sort of attached itself to, I don't like, but the anti-trans movement mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is the far right. I mean, why would someone, like, why would those sort of groups or those sort of political leanings, why would they want to attach themselves to this? Because I don't think that they've shown any sort of care for women over the years. Yeah, I mean, I think this is something that actually really saddens me because, you know, I'm a, I'm a feminist before I'm a trans activist. You know, I've always, I've always been a feminist and believe passionately in that cause and that, you know, trans liberation is part and parcel of a wider project of feminist liberation. And I really think that trans issues and the, the divisive way that uh, they've been portrayed and amplified over the past few years have been used to drive a wedge among 
existing feminist groups or certainly existing kind of public figures, conversation leaders who would call themselves feminists and push them closer towards the far right. Mm. Um, and I think it's a really insidious process by which far right interests that aren't just anti-trans, but also anti-LGBT, anti-abortion, anti-women's rights can get a foothold um, in sort of more, I suppose, centrist discourses or more open discourses, what we sometimes call the reachable middle. Mm. Um, and from there start to widen out. And, you know, it's, you see these connections all the time. You know, if we look at the lawsuit from a couple of years ago, um, Bell and Mrs. A versus Tavistock and Portman, one of the principal um, legal officials in that case was also an anti-abortion lawyer. You know, there, there is a shared group of concerns at the root of this movement and is so much wider than trans people. And I really, really wish that there was more of a spirit of solidarity around these issues because it, it frightens me how how wide the effect could be. Anti-abortion is definitely a movement that mm. is coming around mm. again. I mean, just last year when Northern Ireland were, it was going to be implemented in Northern Ireland, you had Conservative MPs standing up in the House of Commons and declaring that they were pro-life mm. and declaring that they, they had a stake in the anti-abortion movement I mean it's just absolutely inconceivable because what well, I mean would you argue that this sort of anti-trans push is kind of like a way to claw back any sort of progressivism that had that women or anyone has achieved in the last few years yeah I'd certainly say it's part of a wider conservative agenda and you know we can speculate about the exact goals of that agenda endlessly but certainly if we look at the facts there is you know money coming from America some of it coming from Europe um, and it's being used to fund these right-wing projects in the UK. And they are the, the ones that are pushing uh, trans issues as the thin end of a wedge are the ones who are also pushing for uh, restrictions on abortion access for, um, you know, I think a great example is, um, I, I, do, I, do you know, Gillick Competence. So Gillick Competence is the mechanism in UK law by which uh, people under 16 can make decisions about their own medical care. Mm -hmm. It gets brought up all the time in conversations about trans issues because of this fear-mongering narrative about, you know, children are going to get themselves uh, hormones and surgeries and so on and so forth. Now, of course, that's not happening. Um, there's no danger of young people being rushed into treatment. We only need to look at the waiting lists on the treatments to, to have tangible proof of this. But it's become a persuasive argument in anti-trans circles to try and undermine this idea of Gillick competence, this idea of young people having a right to make their own healthcare decisions. But what's really troubling is that Gillick competence overwhelmingly has nothing to do with trans issues, but it is really critical in young people, particularly young women, getting access to contraception right. and getting access to abortion services and to reproductive healthcare. That's and really interesting. It, it's really interesting and it's really scary because there is a clear through line from what seems, I think, to lots of people, like a very palatable anti-trans point, what's articulable very clearly as a sort of, won't somebody think of the children type point, yeah. but actually has much farther reaching um, but actually has much farther reaching consequences for yeah, for the healthcare of young people. So it's a red herring. 
Yeah, I think so. It's It's been really effective in bringing together, I would say, a concerted group of, of interests to push against trans issues with a sort of wider agenda behind Not it. Not another one! It's the Politics Show podcast. I think that some of the actors in that movement, I think, are being earnest. I think sometimes that drip down of media fear that is being propagated has frightened some women. And I think that they're acting earnestly. I don't necessarily think that everyone who is anti-trans is doing it to, you know, propagate mm. um, anti, well, well to, to row, row back on any progressivism that we've seen over the last 30 years. But I suppose, then, is it gullible? Is it is it silly that some so many people have swallowed this narrative that we are, we're being, that we should be fearful? Mm. It's a great question. I think that, I think it would be wrong to call it gullible, even if it's sometimes frustrating. I have to speak a little carefully on this issue because there is, there's a huge diversity of opinion within the community, as I'm sure you mm. can understand, on how sincere, you know, particularly public figures who hold anti-trans views uh, should be treated as, you know, how much forgiveness should be extended. Um, and I can't speak for the whole community on that or, or even for my whole organization. Mm. Certainly my personal opinion would be that it's hard to blame people who, let's say they, they primarily consume like one or two UK newspapers or they get a lot of their news from, um, you know, like the front page of Reddit or the front page of Twitter. Um, it would be hard to blame them for being steered towards um, a suspicious or conservative position towards trans people because the pressure from the media and, and honestly from the government sometimes is so sustained. Um, you know, we can see from YouGov polls that while the majority of the U UK public are, are supportive of trans people and when you look at the LGBT community there is almost overwhelming support for trans people that there isn't the kind of division that I think some of our detractors would like to claim. Um, that the, that public opinion or those public opinion points are being slowly eroded by, I, I suppose, a process of manufacturing consent by the UK media and by the government. Um, it's really interesting, manufacturing consent. Yeah. What do you mean by that? So I suppose it, it's a term that we use to describe a process by which a sustained media narrative is used to influence public opinion. Mm -hmm. You know, fund fundamentally, no one is just transphobic and you see all sorts of things thrown around. You know, you see people in government saying, oh, well, trans issues will never fly with working class voters or... Um, I hate that. You know, I know. Tell me about it. Mm. Country girl, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's also this sort of assumption that hate working class being bandied about as if like it's this sort of homogenous set of people who just think exactly the same way and can't critically make any assessment for themselves mm, mm. it's sort of like if the media says it the working class eats it they're like mm. yes <laughs> yeah absolutely it's completely ridiculous um uh, yeah i suppose in particularly recently this obsessive idea of the red wall as this mm. sort of like hypothetical block of english voters who hate trans people and Muslims and so on and so forth. 
um, which is just completely ridiculous. But but yeah, you see it thrown around all the time. This idea of working class people will think this, or people of faith will think this, and so on and so forth. It does feel elementary that if you put out seven and a half thousand articles about trans people in a year, you know, there was twenty three a day in January of this year, then it is going to affect the way that people think. And to what end? Because how many people are trans in the UK? About 0.5%. We can tell you this. I think the exact number is something like 262,000 said so on the most recent census. Um, but we suspect the number is probably substantially higher because there was there was a, a, um, a sort of grey area of people who um, didn't answer that they, in the affirmative, that they were trans on the survey, but also didn't answer that they weren't, if you know what I mean. So we're we're in this slightly awkward position where we are a tiny minority, but there's still hundreds of thousands of us, right? We still need rights and protections okay. and... Um, by virtue of being a minority. By, by virtue of, but yeah, by virtue of being a minority. And, and we do have them, but we are under a frankly disproportionate amount of pressure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not um, an isolated phenomenon. If we look at the way that uh, migrants and refugees are treated in the British press, we can see, um, I, I think, probably an even an even worse and even more virulent case of how a very small minority of people are pilloried. Mm -hmm. um, but I think because we're such a small minority, we have quite a lot of cultural visibility and we have a huge amount of visibility in the press. We just don't really have any political capital, you know, it, it's it's easy, I suppose, to attack the trans community. Yeah, I won't make it political because I know as you're in a charity, you can't, can't mm. comment either party. But I think all parties have actually taken this on and made it a part of the culture war. And it, mm. we're sort of ramping up for the next election that like we're expecting it probably next year. And it does feel that migration, as you say, trans women, mm -hmm. all of these categories are being used to catapult parties into the headlines. I mean, what what do you think the intent is there? I mean, I think we know, so we know from people like um, Tory strategists, um, like Dougie Smith, um, I hope I've got the name right there, mm -hmm. um, that trans issues and getting trans issues onto the ballot is an intentional push by right-wing think tank strategists and that's fed into uh, the government and the move towards the next general election now. So this is part of this same uh, kind of thin end of the wedge agenda that we were talking about earlier. Um, and that's been, as we've seen, hugely successful with um, by both the Conservatives and Labour I suppose, preparing, it would seem, for a general election race in which trans issues and, and honestly, a pretty conservative, lowercase c, conservative mm. approach to trans issues is a key manifesto point. And it's, it's quite scary, I think, for trans people in the UK right now, waiting to see whether things like uh, changes to the Equality Act, for instance, will end up in a manifesto, because I think that could be a very serious threat. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. It's the Politics Show podcast. Keir Starmer in November 2020, Starmer said that trans rights are human rights and your fight is our fight too. Then in June, he recorded a video message for Pink News and said that trans people are one of the most discriminated groups in our society and Labour were committed to updating the Gender Recognition Act to introduce self-declaration. And then in September of that year, he slapped down Rosie Duffield for saying that only women have a cervix. And then yesterday, he backed rewriting the equality law to ban trans people from same-sex spaces. I mean, what do you think happened in the last two years that made politicians feel they can't be pro-trans? Mm, yeah, great question. I mean, in terms of the last two years, I think it is this shifting of the Overton window through media coverage, um, through sort of pushes from the far right coming from places like the US that has, I suppose, raised the profile of trans issues and then started pushing it as an election issue. Um, and we've ended up in this quite dire race to the bottom situation where, where it feels sometimes as though uh, huge portions of the government on all sides are trying not to be outdone in their sensible, uh, no-nonsense, conservative, lowercase c, mm. approach to trans issues with the result that we're moving quite rapidly towards a case where trans people are being completely disenfranchised. Um, you know, it's it's hard. I think there's been a real loss of faith between the LGBT community and the government. You know, we look at the cancellation of the Safe to Be Me conference last year, for instance, um, that's been going on for years because you'll get on days of visibility, days of awareness, these sort of statements of solidarity and statements of support. But in terms of policy direction, it is getting worse and worse. Support is being progressively withdrawn. Mm. You know, where there is support for, uh, let's say, um, women or for the rest of the queer community, um, it's often couched in opposition to trans issues as a, a, a means of dividing us further. Mm. Um, yeah, I think certainly the community feels betrayed by the government as a whole. Um, and I think quite urgently work needs to be done to rebuild those relationships or, or, or I think voters are going to be, yeah, completely demoralized and completely disenfranchised in the next general election. Well, a lot of the focus is on young people mm. and how young people are adapting to the change. Mm. Um, I find it quite troubling that journalists are inside schools mm. reporting on, 
a random student who would like to wear a skirt rather than shorts. I mean, do you think that it's sort of like an exacerbation of the argument that almost makes it ridiculous, no? Yeah, I agree. I think it's completely prurient, this sort of... And we're talking a bit again about the politicisation of trans people and the politicisation of trans bodies, particularly when it comes to an obsession with young people. Um, I think the, the some of these narratives have become very invasive. I think what often gets forgotten when we talk about young trans people is that they are young people, right? Like they are like, like teenagers often who are already de- dealing with everything that, that, that's difficult about being a teenager, you know, like school, life, and also dealing with being trans at a time when there's an increasing amount of stigma and pressure associated with that. And then sometimes, yeah, they're, they're sort of propelled into the media with no say in the matter. I think we need to think really carefully. In fact, what I'd love to see in these conversations is just a return or a move away from arguing about what we think about trans young people, you know, where our ideological commitments are on trans young people and just to what's best for young people, Mm -hmm. you know, to looking to mental health outcomes, to providing stability, to providing, you know, consistency in education. I think we're starting, we're in danger of losing that for for queer young people as a whole. Um, You know, I, I really... I grew up under Section 28, and I really do feel some days as though we are heading back there. Mm-hmm. Well, there's no support, right? Mm-hmm. So I think a top line that might be used by commentators is, well, if a young boy is thinking about transitioning or is expressing these feelings, well, he should go and, you know, take some mental health services. Well, there is no mental health provision, mm. and you're, you could be on a waiting list for however long. I mean, how... How much of a problem is this country's attitude towards mental health services an issue for the community? I think it's a huge problem. And I think it's been completely misrepresented in the conversation around trans people, particularly around trans young people. Mm. I think there's sometimes this perception that trans, I suppose, uh, organisations or movements are anti-mental health services um, that, you know, that... that, um, we don't want trans young people to get mental health support. Um, and honestly, the opposite is true. Like, we want people to have access to gender identity services if they need them. That's really, really important. But it's so important to be properly supported. You know, coming out at school yeah. is hard. Dealing with, like I said, the stigma associated with being trans is hard. And even outside of trans people, all young people deserve proper access to mental health support. And they're just not getting it. I think there needs to be better support given, not just for young people in schools, but for educators who, you, you know, as we've seen in uh, everything coming out of the strikes recently, are constantly getting a raw deal. Um, for youth workers, for social workers, you know, it's not just a conversation about gender identity services and about young trans people's access to that, but about the way that wave upon wave of cuts and, and, you know, over a decade of austerity has really crippled the social safety net that ought to protect young people in general. And then you end up in a situation where teachers who are now kind of first, I was going to say first responders, but that wouldn't be right. But first, yeah, the first to perhaps notice that a child wants to transition, they're actually at the forefront of it, but they haven't had adequate training to deal with it. And then you end up with these weird 
right-wing teachers who then go on news shows saying they've been cancelled because they don't want to use correct pronouns in a classroom or mm. whatever. Yeah. It just feels deeply unhealthy, the entire cycle. Yeah, I think it is. And I think we need to be aware of the way that these narratives get inflated and amplified. Mm. You know, I think one thing, and I want to return us again to, to this idea, well, this this fact that the majority of the UK public are supportive of trans people. And the same is true of teachers. You know, if we want to talk about Section 28 again, under Section 28, it was something like 10% of queer teachers were open about their identity. Now it's 90%. You know, there are schools by and large, of course, it's not the rule, but schools by and large are supportive educators by and large are supportive and I really do believe that you know young people that the next generation that we're educating and raising have a really good chance to be sort of the best supported and the most supportive generation and particularly but, young people as well they want that young people seem to be a lot more progressive and a lot more adapted to these ideas mm -hmm. that you can't move on TikTok without you know just like just just normality. No, there's no. Doesn't seem to be a stigma with Gen Z in the way that it is with generations that you know are generations past. But do you not think that maybe political parties might be smart to engage with that? I mean, it's the next cohort of voters, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that young people have been left completely out of the political conversation. If I'm honest, um, you know, I can't. I can't speculate as to what the strategy is there, mm. but absolutely, I think that on trans issues and more widely, there needs to be more political engagement with young people because, you know, there's just, there's a real lack of places for them to turn at the moment. Um, and that's unsustainable. <laughs> that's unsustainable. Get out of my pub! It's the Politics Show podcast. Well, I'll draw you point you towards this Tory councillor who wrote an article for the Daily Mail a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if you read this, about an encounter that she had in a women's bathroom in Westminster. And she wrote this piece for the Daily Mail in which she said she'd been having a very normal conversation with someone and as this person was leaving, they apparently said, I don't need to dry my hands, I'm going to wipe my hands on my penis. Mm. The person who allegedly said this came out and was like, this is not what happened at all. Her name was Sophia and it was all a big fallacy. I mean, what are the ramifications of a story like that going into the national press? Yeah, so I, I think we need to be really careful with stories like this because they're so often, and I'm sort of aware of the conversations that happen around this one, but yeah. in general, stories like this so often dissolve into a kind of he said, she said, they said. Sure. Um, that I think it's really important not to get drawn into them. Um, because again, it's a kind of prurient interest. You know, you, you mentioned these stories about teachers. What's, what those stories are looking to amplify is the idea that UK schools are full of teachers being cancelled for failing to use pronouns or something like that. You know, they want to get this narrative across that actually most teachers or all teachers secretly think like this and you know this story about the bathroom encounter what it wants to get across is this idea that any you know anyone you meet in a bathroom who is a bit taller or broad-shouldered or whatever might be a trans woman looking to to, to do something sexually predatory or something i don't mm -hmm. know and 
it's fear-mongering, you know? It, it, it's projecting these scenarios out there as things that, as it, with the idea that these things are commonplace, when in fact they are things that happen to individuals. They're extremely isolated cases. It, it, all the time, I would say, invariably, like the bathroom situation, like the um, situation with the... Um, with Enoch Burke, for instance, yeah, um, there is much, much more to to it than the initial story suggests. But that's almost that's almost not the point. The point is to present a situation where transgender people have got you fired, or transgender people have made you uncomfortable, so that that's what people who read those stories are then feeling and thinking when they're going about their jobs, when mm -hmm. they are you know, using the bathroom in the pub or whatever. Which is the overarching theme of this policy that Kemi Badenoch is proposing, which is to basically say, well, anyone could be a threat in a, a female-only space, and therefore we have to bring in stringent laws to make sure that this threat can't take place, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's certainly the subtext of it, and that's certainly one of the... You know, it's why it's so galling that uh, the, the letter from the EHRC... Um, a couple of times claimed that this would improve the rights and protections of trans men because, of course, they've they've never cared about trans men. They've never sincerely invested in trans men once because it's always been about trans women and about amplifying the fear of trans women, of trans women being in spaces with cis women. How have they focus grouped this, though, I wonder? Because, I mean, how... Not to be state the obvious, but how, how would you check... So mm. you're talking about, you know, we're going to get into a point where someone with broader shoulders or who is tall is going to walk into a bathroom, me, and, you know, women are going to be taught to fear them, right? Other women. How would you go about policing this proposal? Well, this is the thing. And it's one of the, it's one of the first responses we had at GI because it is, it is fundamentally unenforceable. Like it's totally unenforceable. I think the point and the reason that this, this letter has been released as a kind of effective non-statutory guidance, almost, is that the point isn't that it would be legally enforceable. You know, they, they, some of the examples they give are absurd. They talk about a book club, like, I love my book club. I've got a book club. Um, they're wonderful. They've never asked me for my birth certificate. <laughs> um, but the idea is that people will read things like this letter and they will interpret it as there has been a change in the law mm -hmm. or they will sort of believe that it's on them to start thinking about excluding trans people or in the case of, you know, people who've been wanting an excuse to trans people to exclude trans people, which I don't think happens as often as we might fear, but does happen, will use this to take action. And that's when people will start sort of self-selecting, I suppose, to exclude people they perceive to be trans. Mm. We've seen how this goes down in the US, you know, in states that have bathroom bills, where it's the people you see in the papers being excluded from bathrooms are like butch cis lesbians. Um, because, well, you know, as, as we all know, everybody thinks they know what trans people look like, but... Um, but that's just so bizarre, isn't it? Because it's just so, it, it's so regressive. Yeah. It's just, it's just miserable. Yeah. I mean, the bathroom debate has always been intriguing to me because I never... Okay, 
we've had gender neutral bathrooms in most places, certainly in media. I can tell you I've worked at many media outlets and most of them are gender neutral. And one I haven't worked at, just to put on the table, but it's GB News. They have gender neutral bathrooms. And I know this because I have friends who produce that. And they are the biggest, you know, soothsayers of this is dangerous and all of it. They've had these in there for so long. So yeah, it's, I guess it's like an imagined fear mm-hmm. that's come around, mm-hmm. which is dangerous. Yeah, it's completely dangerous. And, and the worst part is that, you know, you, you scratch the surface of this and underneath it is harm to women mm-hmm. or all women, you know, it's about expecting people to conform to gender norms. Um, it's anti-feminist, right? Yeah. I wouldn't want to... The way that they talk about it, they talk about it as if like people are now sharing cubicles. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to see any of anyone in the bathroom. <laughs> no one. Like, I don't want to see Sandra in there. I want to see Linda. <laughs> Interesting. I want my journey to be completely uninterrupted. I, I want to be solo. Solo bathroom. <laughs> That's not... <laughs> I just want to ask you about Swim England. And so they were in the news this week because they are creating open and female categories Mm. i mean what was your reaction to that so um there's been quite a few uh sports bodies recently that have either been excluding trans women completely or tightening the restrictions on um participation in the female category for not just for trans women for intersex people as well Mm -hmm. or um as we've seen with swim england the creation of open categories It's really dismaying, although I think at this point it's nothing new to us because it represents an onward movement in sport towards the exclusion of trans people. Um, I think there's a couple of things to say here. One is there's no need for it. You know, there was a study from uh, Canada recently that found that um, in cycling, um, and I think the results can be extrapolated to a lot of competitive sports, at the elite level, being trans didn't make a substantial difference to competitive performance compared to social factors like access to training, access to equipment. You know, I think one of the things that reveals these restrictions on trans athletes and particularly on trans feminine athletes as more of a culture war issue than anything seriously invested in safety and fairness is that what they amount to is restrictions on... um, you know, they talk th- about things like height, about weight, about mm. um, bone structure, things like this. But we don't police elite athletes based on their height and weight and bone structure already, you know. And we can see how this already creates unfairness in both directions, you know, like if we're going to ban trans women because they might be taller and strong- stronger then we should look at banning people like, you know, Michael Phelps, who historically, because of a series of physiological benefits, was was at the top of his career forever. Mm -hmm. You know, we can see how these bans exclude cisgender women like Casta Semenya, um, who end up getting swept up by legislation, uh, by legislation, sorry, by rules that have been intended to exclude trans people and end up predominantly affecting women. And they'll continue to predominantly affect women, particularly women with uh, DSDs, because there are so few transgender athletes. And and the second, and I think very serious concern, is that honestly applying this at elite level is likely to affect a fraction of transgender people. It's still bad, but as, as I mentioned, there are very few trans athletes. 
But where this will really cause pain is at grassroots level, where already we can see grassroots sports organizations following the lead of elite bodies in employing trans-exclusionary practices, which means you have a whole demographic of people, particularly young people at schools, in youth projects, in community sports, who are being excluded from sport and physical activity. And that's when it starts leading. That's to, crazy. Yeah, it's mad. And, and, and it starts leading to um, sort of development of poor physical health, development of poor mental health. Like it hurts people. You're going to be getting into a situation where like people are foot binding, like to fit into <laughs> the, what you said about social um, factors is so interesting. Because mm. I thought that about when, <clears throat> sorry, when it was in the press about the Ivy League swimmer. Mm. who was competing in a women's team, mm. wasn't it? Um, and I was just thinking, well, what goes into getting into an Ivy League college? Because just your average American can't go in. I mean, what is the take rate for that? They're like 18% take rate or something like that for Harvard and Yale. So many Americans are factored out from going to those universities, even if they're excellent at sport, mm. by virtue of not having enough money to do the training. Mm. It's, you know, where do you draw the line? I think this is it. I think it's so, this kind of approach to sport and to who gets to participate in sport is so far from socially minded. You know, it, we, we, these regulations are coming out um, like the regulations that's from England have introduced that are intended to exclude a very small minority from the top level of the support and ultimately what they're doing is excluding many many more people from accessing the sport at all you know besides the fact that nobody should be excluded from sport on the basis of who they are i feel like what we need to be doing with sport and physical activity in this country is to be pushing to get more people involved particularly young people not going back and forth over who ought to be excluded Thank you very much, Cleo. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Total Rhubarb. It's the Politics Show podcast. If you like that conversation, let us know at politicsjoe underscore UK on Twitter or leave us a review wherever you're listening. And if you want more political chat with a healthy side of humour, make sure you're subscribed to the Politics Joe podcast wherever you get your podcasts. See you on the next one. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.